and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 224, Desperate Times, Desperate Measures. Last time, the Allied forces had engaged the defensive line just south of the region's capital, Amsterdam. But as the Welsh and Scots were outgunned, they and their tanks, now down to four from twelve, were stopped in their tracks. Brigadier Festing, in command, and positioned further back from the line, decided to wait until morning to renew the attack, though the original plan had called for the port city to fall that same day. Still, by waiting, Festing should have more men and equipment, as they were still coming off the boats. Of course, the French would have the same opportunity, but Colonel Clairbou, the military commander, wasn't going to wait until morning, because he didn't have to. Brigadier Festing had those closest to the enemy line stay in place. This was a risk, but at least he would know if the French made a move. Of course, the other side of that coin is, the French had something to attack. But the bad news started even before night proper descended across the island. When Lieutenant Colonel Armstrong of the 1st Battalion got back to the front, after reporting and getting orders from Festing, he was told that some of D Company's platoons were unaccounted for. Armstrong crawled forward to the anti-tank ditch, and there waiting for him were just two fusiliers, and both of those were wounded. Taking the men back to the battalion, it was then he came upon the missing men, and they had a story to tell. Men from 17th Platoon had been trapped in the anti-tank ditch. That was bad enough. But then the French had placed machine guns at the top of the height on their side of the ditch. The platoon was ordered to fall back, but they couldn't. They couldn't even raise a hand or it would have been shot off. Fortunately, the ditch was not in a straight line, so these men had some level of protection, as long as they stayed down. Then Fusilier Bernard Grenham took over the story that was being told to Armstrong. As the Fusiliers were trying to think of a way out, someone shouted, Bloody hell, they're coming! And indeed, the French officers had sent Senegalese troops to walk along the top of the ditch and shoot down at the enemy. So Grenham said, I could see we weren't going to get out of this, so I stood up and fired a couple of shots at the Senegalese. I don't think I hit anyone, but it made the Senegalese jump down. This was our chance to run for it, because the machine gunner could not fire in case he hit his own men. Grenham was promoted to NCO, a non-commissioned officer, and was mentioned in dispatches, which is a bigger deal than it sounds, for that has to happen before any award can be issued. Before the Scots and Welsh had reached this defensive line, the attack overall had been going well. The attack at Col de Bonne Nouvelle had been a success after a rough start, and the bridges that needed to be taken had been taken. True, there had been confusion and a lack of communication, but that was being overcome for now. There would be more confusion and lack of communication to follow. Brigadier Festing had hoped the latest sudden attack right before nightfall would do the trick, but he had too few men and not enough power. That changed when the 455th Light Battery showed up. And yet, the terrain worked against them. As the land in front of the French defensive line was flat, mixed with a little vegetation, there was no safe place or suitable place to set up the observation team, and that was paramount for the guns. 
As for the bigger guns, the 25-pounders of the 9th Field Regiment Royal Artillery, they were still struggling to reach this location. Here's another moment that could have been handled better if the proper information had been calculated into the attack. Remember Percy Mayer, the Ford Motor Guy, comes by, had told the British of the defensive line, and further, he had given them a map, and the British used that map. However, on part of the map, there was marked Ouvage, where they were at now. But the British officers had misinterpreted the word. For the French, it meant defensive line, but the British understood it to be like works, like a factory. Another mistake. And here's another. The British also did not know that this defensive line went from shore to shore. It was some three and a half miles long, located about two miles below the port city and Serain. And there was a proper fort at each end of this line to stop the enemy from trying to outflank them. As this line had been built back in 1909, London should have known more about what they were facing. And since 1909, machine guns, observation posts, 75mm emplacements, pillboxes, and mortar areas had been added. Even worse for the attackers, some parts of the line had a mobile 75mm gun in place, ready to move to any serious threat. And an attack from the air would be equally challenging, as most of the above was well camouflaged. But again, Festing was not aware of this. But it got worse. It can always get worse. The anti-tank ditch was about 1,400 yards in front of the defensive line. Though this ditch did not run from shore to shore, it was long enough to be on both sides of all three roads here that ran north to south. Thus, it was not only the French firepower that was holding back the attack. Unless the invaders had ladders or something equally so to get over the tank ditch quickly and in large numbers, they weren't going anywhere. Of the three roads mentioned, the road to the west, or far left, was the road currently being used by Festing's men. The center road led to Arachart Airfield, but both of these ran right into the French defenses. A far eastern road, which went along the coast, had as its saving grace the strong fort Bellevue at its end, which had its own 75mm gun and snipers. Major General Robert Sturgis and Brigadier Festing put their heads together and realized the only chance they had for success right now was to use every man and every gun and charge at the line. But there was a problem. Well, several problems. But the biggest one right now was that the men of the 29th Brigade were exhausted. They had just walked and fought for 18 miles, carrying with them all of their goods or pulling it all on handcarts. And the heat and humidity had done its job. But at least the rest of the guns of the 455th Light Battery were now disembarked and coming up fast, well, as fast as they could, along with some of the units of the 17th Brigade. Of course, those men of the 17th had to witness the returning of the wounded to the beach that they were leaving. From there, the wounded would be taken to the hospital ship Atlantis, but it's probably best they knew that the French were not going to be a pushover. There was still work to do. Back to Brigadier Festing. Though he cannot be completely excused for his part of day one not reaching its goal, he would later write, 
The information most valuable to an assault commander is the information about military installations and defenses and numbers and calibers of troops. True enough. But the only thing for it now was to gather his artillery, men, that being the whole of the 29th Brigade, his few tanks, the guns of the ships out in Courier Bay, and whatever the fleet air arm had left, and drive right into the enemy's prepared position. In other words, many of his men would die in the next day or two. But like Pandora's box, when opened, this was the situation Festing had to deal with. Period. As the men of both sides settled down, the French satisfied themselves with an occasional sniper shot. And when a French tracer shot started a bushfire, fortunately, it stayed away from the men of the 29th Brigade. As for the British-led forces, they had a relatively quiet night, minus the fire, which came to an end at 2 a.m., now May 6th. With food in their bellies, the first Scots Fusiliers, led by Armstrong, moved towards the enemy's position, but not to attack, rather to distract, as other forces were moving into place, hopefully unnoticed. As the men scarfed down their food, Sturgis finalized his attack plan. The Scots Fusiliers and the East Lanks would hit the main defensive line. Meanwhile, the South Lanks would head west to be ready to turn the French far right flank. Problem was, at the end of the line, again, was another fort. Here, Fort Caymans. Lastly, this would leave the Welsh Fusiliers sitting on the Aribata Road to act as a reserve for the main attack. Before long, the South Lanks were on the move, heading west. Just before the attack was underway and they got past Fort Caymans, the South Lanks would swing around and hit the Joffrey line, that is, the main defensive line, from the rear. And with the Scott Fusiliers and East Lanks attacking and demonstrating in front, hopefully the South Lanks would be able to get stuck in before the French could realize the threat and appropriately respond to it. And once the defensive line was pierced from front and back and it began to shatter, the attack on Anserain itself could commence. This attack was to start at 5.30 a.m., zero hour, and it would be joined by the fleet air arm. If and when this worked, the Welsh Fusiliers, still in reserve and rusted, would rush through the shattered line with the remaining tanks and the battalion's Bren gun carriers and attack the port city itself. Increasing the chances of success, the four howitzers of the 455th Light Battery had reached the line and were now in a position to help, with the early morning attack. It was hoped that the two guns of the 9th Field Regiment would join in, but one gun was still en route and the other had to be landed further north due to recently discovered mines. The idea was to land the second gun and put it in a place along the Adrakaka Peninsula to help shell Anserain when the attack came. But as touching the gun as it moved due east, it soon came within range of the French sloop D'Entrecastou in the bay's lower left corner. Trapped she may be, but here was a chance to help defend the island. Not needing to lose another piece of equipment, sea hurricanes were dispatched from the Indomitable to go again after the French vessel. Here's how pilot Hugh Popham of 880 Squadron described his approach. We flew in low all the way to the sea, over the low bare hills of the northern part of the island, until the great harbor opened up in front of us. 
with the sloop in the shallows to the north of the town. She had steam up, and as we raced across the water, she let loose volumes of oily smoke that blew in a dense cloud towards us. One after another, we tore into her, guns blazing. The tracer showed up briefly as it went sparkling into the smoke, our tracers going in and theirs coming out. I held it, thumb hard down, and that intoxicating drumming of eight machine guns shaking the whole aircraft into the smoke until, a yard or two in front of me, the mast and aerials suddenly loomed up. I hauled back on the stick, and we went wheeling around for another run. After the hurricanes had their chance, the carrier's swordfish were sent in. One of their bombs pierced the deck and then exploded. Soon, the sloop was aflame. Still, while some of the crew fought the fires, others continued to man the guns, keeping this threat alive. Not until the destroyer La Foray came in and let loose 86 shells did the Dontre Castou beat herself and give up the fight. She had been hit 16 times, and matching this, 16 crewmen, including the captain, were killed. But the sloop wasn't quite done being a pain in the enemy's backside. During the night, about 40 French Marines had left the sloop and landed on the Adracaca Peninsula. Think the left finger sticking into Diego Suarez Bay. And on that peninsula, close by the bay, was Cap Diego, a fortification with a gun. The Marines' plan had been to use said gun to shell the enemy as they were making their way to the fight just below Aunt Serene. But the Marines had been spotted, so commandos were sent to silence them, which they did, but it was still a distraction that Festing did not need. It was time. At 3 a.m., the men moved out in companies. As B and D companies had been to the tank ditch before, B led C Company, and D led A Company. They were all to the right of the center road. And the three-inch mortars went with C Company, and the battalion HQ went with A Company for extra firepower. This left the East Lanks to take up a position to the left of the road before moving out. While this was going on, the South Lanks, to the far left or west, were still traveling in the darkness. Despite precautions, soon the men were scattered, and one platoon from A Company could not be found. There was nothing for it but to move on, still in their two columns. At 4.30 a.m., they were in place. As there was still an hour to go until the attack, the South Lanks wanted to hold on to the element of surprise as long as they could, so slipped past the end of the defensive line as quickly and quietly as they could. And this mostly went well. Still in two columns, companies A and B with the battalion headquarters made it past until a platoon from B Company got separated and walked right into an enemy position. Five of their men were quickly killed, including the platoon leader. Meanwhile, the left column made up of C and D companies moved on until they were stopped in their tracks by the guns of Fort Caymans and snipers who were set up in a nearby house, which is when Private Arthur Craddock of D Company had had enough. Rising up, he charged across 20 yards of open ground to reach the house of the snipers, but instead of going in the front door, he ran around back. As he rushed through the back door, he shot the first three men he saw and then bayoneted the last four. 
how or why they let themselves be overwhelmed is still a mystery. Either way, the house was now secure. The snipers were dead. Seeing this, the other French troops in the nearby area surrendered, rather than facing Crazy Craddock, if I may. As for Craddock, he would be awarded the Distinguished Conduct Medal. Back to the other column, the right-hand column, but still to the far left of the fighting, Lieutenant Colonel West led his men, and now that they were behind the enemy line, they made for the first structure they saw, the Anna Bozaka Barracks. The barracks were empty, so the men moved out, which is when they were pinned down from fire coming from a nearby wood. B Company Commander Major Northcote told one platoon to lay down suppression fire while he led the other platoon around the side. But soon, Northcote was hit in the chest, and other men fell as well. The men who were wounded, but still alive, were taken prisoner. As things stood now, both columns, left and right, were in a bad situation. They were separated from each other, both were losing men, both were pinned down, and neither column's radio was working. Or perhaps Brigadier Festing's radio wasn't working. Either way, Festing did not know of their situation, but he was still hell-bent on making his attack. When zero hour came, the fleet air arm was as good as its word. They dove down and let loose with bomb after bomb. Problem was, the French had so well concealed their guns, the pilots were guessing. There was a whistle as the bomb came down, the resulting explosion, but little damage done. One pilot figured the only way to pinpoint the enemy was to let them shoot at him. So he went around in circles at 200 feet, and he found the enemy, and they him. He would go down in flames, but one of his comrades got lucky. His bomb hit an ammo dump. The explosion was spectacular. Now that it was clear the British forces were attacking again, the French moved forward with their plans, but not just defensive plans, but also denial plans. One by one, oil tanks and other stored materials were set ablaze, detonated, or destroyed in some other way. Anything to make sure the enemy did not get their hands on them. The British artillery attack went on for an hour, and when it stopped, that was the signal for the infantry to move out. Leading the way were the Scots Fusiliers, as they jumped up from the tank ditch and charged. But as they were mostly out in the open, men started falling. Still, the battalion ran forward, determined to reach the main defensive line. And some got within a few hundred yards. But the closer they got, the more accurate and sustained was the firing from the French. B Company, on the right side of the road, pushed forward, but soon was taking heavy fire from a series of huts. Those of B Company, closest to the huts, started throwing grenades. This was enough to quiet those in the hut, so the men moved on. Now they could see the main defensive line and began to get excited, but then mortars and machine guns from the French line silenced their enthusiasm and, for some, their lives. The irony was, the closer one got to the main line, the more open the terrain was, which served the defenders. The assault started to falter. D Company went to ground, and their leader wanted his men to fall back enough to use a slight rise to try to get around this part of the line. But the runner who had the message was wounded himself, and soon was holed up, waiting for help. 
Thus the Scots Fusiliers were trapped. So the East Lanks took their turn. But the fire against them was intense, as the French had little else to shoot at. The East Lanks found themselves too exposed to go any further. Not giving up, of course, a Bren gun carrier platoon was sent ahead. The idea was to swing wide of the closest guns and try to make a dash at them from an angle that, hopefully, would not be noticed. But the man in the lead carrier, Lieutenant Arnold, turned in too quickly and ended up leading his platoon right in front of the enemy artillery. Five carriers were quickly destroyed. Only three made it back to base. As for the men in the five ruined carriers, some of them, in time, would be able to crawl back to their side of the fight. As this was clearly not working, the East Langs and Scots were ordered to pull back. But in the confusion, the order did not reach everyone. Soon, some were left stranded, but unable to raise their heads. Once the men started arriving back at the jump-off point, they were told to form a perimeter. As they were on a ridge slightly higher than the anti-tank ditch, they were safe enough for the moment. But there should have been more men back by now. So Captain Coulter and Captain Evitz got out on their bellies and started to crawl back to the front. In time, most of the Scots were found and told to back up. At one point, Coulter was knocked out by a shell, but then he awoke and got back to his job. But some of the men were so far forward, they had to wait for the area to change hands before they could come out. One of the men who had made it the farthest was a Lieutenant Rayner, but by this point, all he had was one grenade. As he was close to a machine gun pit, itself one of several protecting a 75mm gun emplacement, he charged the smaller pit and threw in his one grenade. Just as he threw his grenade, a bullet hit him full on the mouth, but it was about to get worse for Rayner. The machine gun nest had netting over it for just such an occasion. The grenade was thrown back by the netting, thus Rayner was injured a second time. Rayner would receive the military cross. Now, all this had happened in a very short amount of time. The main attack had started at 5.30 a.m. Now, it was 5.53 a.m. And as nothing was going right, Rear Admiral Seifert ordered the heavy cruiser Devonshire to move closer to the Arangia Peninsula. That is, that land that makes up the southern half of the bay's opening. The idea was for the Devonshire to be ready to hit the batteries protecting the bay's opening. If Anserain could not be taken from the south, then it would be blasted and threatened from the bay itself until all within surrendered. Postscript, Crazy Craddock, that's my name for him, would sadly die just before the war ended on April 1st, 1945 in Burma. He is buried in Rangoon, modern-day Yangon. 